Well, good morning, Project Church. Uh, It's a pleasure to once again come and open God's Word with you. As part of our Compassion Sunday service, I've been asked to preach from a passage in Scripture that really captures the heartbeat and some of the central ideas uh, behind our Compassion sponsorship. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 7 through 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. This is what it says. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when it comes to the gospel accounts that we have in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we have to ask ourselves the question, for whom were they written? In one sense, and arguably the most important sense, these accounts have been handed down for all people, for all times to testify to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the last 2,000 years, people have been able to open the Gospels, read the first-hand stories about what all that Jesus has done and said, and in doing so, they've had their hearts captivated by the most majestic historical figure, that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Just last weekend, I was having brunch with a young fella, and his eyes and facial expressions were lighting up. His enthusiasm was almost palpable as he was describing to me just how captivated his heart was the first time he encountered the person of Christ on the pages of Scripture. It was like nothing he'd, never, he'd ever experienced before. He said that all he wanted to do after each day's work was to rush home and read the Bible. Christ had captivated him. So let's be clear this morning, the gospel accounts have been written for everyone. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, but you'd like to know more about him, I implore you, begin with the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. There you will find the most thrilling figure in all of history. And if you think that would just be an exercise in futility or something quite dull, well, let's just say I stumbled across this quote by Dorothy Sayers that might uh, make you change your mind. This is what she had to say about it. She said, the people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies." 
So the gospel accounts are not only worth the read, thank you Dorothy Sayers, but they were written for everyone. But then in another sense, we also have to recognise that each of these gospel accounts was originally written to a particular target audience with particular theological and pastoral objectives at a particular point in time-space history. They're not all written exactly the same. Uh, If you've ever seen the Hunger Games, you could say that some gospels would be best preached in the capital, uh, others would be best preached in District 12. They're not all written the same. Uh, The Gospel of Mark, for example, that was originally written for your average punter. In terms of how it was put together, how, what you would compare it to in terms of literary genre, it kind of reads like a weekend newspaper bulletin. It's like picking up the Toowoomba Chronicle. It's telling you long, detailed stories about the miraculous healing ministry of Jesus, and then it leaves it up to you, the reader, to figure out who you say he is. That's the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Matthew, on the other hand, is quite different. It was targeted specifically towards Jews. If you've ever read Matthew, you'll notice that he doesn't spill as much ink as Mark does on the miracles of Jesus, but he will spill a lot of ink telling you how all that Christ has done and said is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. You don't get too far into the Gospel of Matthew before you start stumbling upon phrases like these. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. So it is written by the prophet. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. On and on and on it goes. This book is designed to encourage first generation Jewish Christians who would converted out of Judaism that they were on the right track. That Christianity is the culmination of everything the Old Testament pointed to and that they shouldn't succumb to the pressure to go back to Judaism. They were on the right track. That's what the Gospel of Matthew is originally designed to do. But what about the Gospel that we're in today? What about the Gospel of Luke? Who was that originally written for? Luke's Gospel wasn't written for your average punter. Nor was it specifically addressed to the Jews. No, Luke was originally originally targeting the aristocracy to rich noble, well-to-do Gentiles. Take a look at how the gospel begins. Uh, This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We're told here that Luke is writing his gospel having been financially supported by a rich Gentile who's basically sponsoring Luke to undertake his work. Uh, You could say that Luke has been placed on the equivalent of a PhD scholarship program so that he can write about the life and ministry of Jesus. That's what he's doing here. And because Luke knows who his specific target audience is, He's going to speak about the life and ministry of Jesus in such a way that will uniquely challenge them and highlight the specific ways that rich Gentiles are called to follow Jesus. And you need to know this morning that by implication, that includes you. If you're a 21st century Westerner who lives in Australia... You drove here to church this morning in your own car and you had enough spare change in your console to afford a coffee on the way. Well, in Luke's eyes at least, you're something of an aristocrat. You're a rich, well-to-do 
Gentile. And he has something unique to say to you. And as you make your way through Luke's gospel, you're going to quickly encounter just how much ink Luke spills on this idea that the good news of the gospel and the hand of mercy that accompanies the gospel is for the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the ostracized, and those who are just conveniently out of our view. Jesus made it really clear in Luke chapter 4, reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So despite what some people may tell you, Jesus' ministry to the poor is inescapable. And so what people like you and I often need is to really turn to the Gospel of Luke and get a good old kick-in-the-pants wake-up call that as Christians we are called to adopt a posture and a disposition towards the poor, not of callousness, but of compassion. But before we can truly extend our hands in mercy in a manner that is pleasing to God, we really first need to bend our knees in humility. Let's read verses 7 through 11 again. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now in this scene, Jesus is dining at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and whilst there he observes that the Pharisees are engaged in what might be described as a socially cunning game of musical chairs. Uh, You see, in those days, where you sat at the table said a lot about who you were. It wasn't like a King Arthur, Knights of the Round Table kind of job where you're all sat around a circle as equals. No, tables in those days were U-shaped. And I've created something of a schematic on screen. Hopefully that's helpful. Where's that one going to? There it is. You see, the host would sit at the centre, at the apex of the U, if you like. And then as a guest, the next seat of honour would be to the host's left. The second highest seat of honour would then be to the host's right. And then it would go in descending order, left, right, left, right, all the way down the table until you got to the dreaded lowest place on the far right end of the U. Now, this wasn't just your cheap general admission ticket. I mean, this was like the restricted viewing section. You were so far away from the corporate box, it wasn't funny. And the Pharisees did not want to be sitting there. So they would scramble really hard to sit next to the host. But Jesus says, if you approach the dinner table and you go galloping after this seat of honour in a self-seeking manner, you run the risk that someone more distinguished than you, either because of their age or because of their rank, they could come along and the host will say, oh, sorry, Jaden, you'll actually have to move down. Well, it's not as though people are going to shuffle along for you. No, you have got a walk of shame in front of you. You have to get up in front of everyone And make your way down to the dreaded lowest place at the table. 
And in a shame and honour culture, that would have been a really big deal to have to get up and move to the lowest place. I bet you can relate. I mean, for me personally, the amount of childhood memories that surface at this point is voluminous. I mean, did you ever go um, defiantly stampeding to the front seat of the car as a kid when you knew it was someone else's turn or someone else had called shotgun? I mean, then your mum tells you, hey, get in the back. You ever had that one? Especially if it's your sister's turn to sit in the front. There is nothing more shameful at that point. Or did you ever catch the school bus in the 90s as a primary schooler at the grand height of four foot tall and consider yourself worthy to take a seat on the glorious and renowned back seat of the bus where all the cool kids sit, only to have the high schoolers swiftly remove you from office? Oh, the shame as you walk back towards the driver with the tail between your legs. I just about need to book a session at the Restore Centre thinking about some of these things. Oh, the shame. But Jesus says, listen, I've got a better idea. Instead of scrambling for the seat of honour and then having, uh, to, having to hide yourself in shame, why don't you just go and place yourself at the lowest place to begin with? Start there, be content there, and then when the host finally arrives, he will then say, hey, friend, come up higher, come sit closer to me. And then in that way, you'll receive honour in a way that's both due and deserving. It really echoes uh, what uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 25. He said, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Now at this point, you might just want to press pause and say, wait a minute, why did I come to church this morning what, to learn about first century table manners? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? I mean, even Jesus' suggestion to begin at the lowest place still sounds quite self-seeking. Because at the end of the day, the objective is to get back to the seat of honour. It's like Jesus has just moved us from one form of craftiness to another. So what's he really getting at here? But we must remember this is a parable. And parables always speak beyond the temporal and into the eternal. When Jesus says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted, he is shooting way past mere table manners and into something much deeper. He's talking about salvation. Now, granted, there are some temporal lessons uh, to be learned here. For example, I had a friend and his wife come to visit our church down on the Gold Coast. They hadn't been to church for a little while and they were checking us out. The number one thing that stood out to them, of all the things they could have noticed that were attractive about our church services, the one thing that stood out was that the lead pastor of the church didn't sit in the front row. He was hiding you know, out on the side on aisle 12 somewhere and didn't sit in the front row. You see, they'd only ever been to churches where the, the front seat was a kind of VIP lounge for the leadership team. And so when they saw a pastor in aisle 12, they didn't have a category for it. So it was a real symbol of the pastor's humility. So in that sense, there are certainly temporal lessons that we can learn here. But it is so much more than that. Pastor Kent Hughes put it this way. He says, there is more here than social wisdom. Our Lord was not concerned that his hearers merely learned to take the lowest seat so they would avoid embarrassment and then achieve higher human honour when they were ostentatiously ushered from the lowest seat to the highest. Neither was he teaching the Pharisees and scribes to put on a staged humility so they would be greatly honoured above their peers. Jesus hated the pride that pretends to be humble. Rather, he was imparting an eternal spiritual principle that will be evident in the end when everything is made right. 
Well, after 11 weeks, we just finished up restoration groups on Thursday night. Uh, <clears throat> God was up to some really good things uh, in the lives of all those involved. And in the men's group, we learnt that we do have some particularly talented psalm writers here at the project. And as I shared my story at different points uh, throughout the course, especially when parts of my story intersected with the stories of other men in the group, one of the things I shared a few times was that there's one passage that I have to continually revisit in order to keep my heart in check. Without this passage, well, I'm, I'm on a destructive course of pride and in urgent need of recalibration. That passage is Luke chapter 18. This is one I have to have on repeat myself. And in Luke chapter 18, that same phrase about the self-exalting being, self-exalting being humbled and the humble being exalted pops up again and Luke is explicitly talking about salvation. Let me read it for you. This is verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Wow. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, pointing to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, here it is again, will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Luke chapter 18 and I see the arrogant declarations of the Pharisee, I'm basically just looking into a mirror. Oh, I may be a Christian pastor, but I'm also a recovering Pharisee. And unfortunately, this kind of self-exalting pride infiltrates the way I operate in more ways than I'd like to admit. You see, like the Pharisee here in Luke 18, I need to be constantly reminded that my legal right standing before God is not contingent on my performance, but is bound up entirely with Christ's performance on my behalf. At the end of the day, which of these two men was said to be justified? It was the humble tax collector. The man who beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen, when it comes to our salvation, it would be complete and utter insanity for us to approach the throne room of Almighty God and attempt to persuade him that our performance has made us worthy to sit at the table. Even if that performance includes ministry to the poor, you can't build up ministry to the poor and then make a case for yourself to sit at the table. The truth is, if our place at the table were contingent on our performance, we wouldn't get a seat at the table at all. We'd be left outside. The only reason you and I have a seat at the table at all, regardless of your exact seat, is because in Christ we've been graciously and undeservingly invited to it. And it's only at the discretion of the host as to where you sit. And when your heart marinates in that truth, it does something to you. It changes the way you relate to God. It changes the way you repent. It changes the way you view and relate to other people. And in Christian leadership, it changes the nature of your service. Sadly, as one author put it, sometimes we're so mesmerized with wearing the robes of the ruler that we neglect to wear the apron of the servant. But when the gospel informs our posture at the dinner table, it will move us to cultivate a spirit of humility. 
And a failure to cultivate this posture can only be put down to the problem of pride. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, Humility may well be called the queen of the Christian graces. To know our own sinfulness and weakness and to feel our need of Christ is the very beginning of saving religion. Would we know the root and spring of humility? One word describes it. The root of humility is right knowledge. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. Ignorance. Nothing but sheer ignorance. Ignorance of self, of God and of Christ is the real secret of pride. J.C. Ryle. You see, first, we need to live out of a recognition of our own spiritual poverty. And only then will our hearts be rightly moved towards those who are caught in financial poverty. Let's read verses 12 through 14 again of Luke 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. As many of you know, Alice and I have been building a house over the last five months, and so we were very excited on Friday morning when we were handed the keys. Uh, And let me tell you, if we were to read this particular passage, uh, on a surface level at least, we would be left feeling quite depressed because we've got big plans to invite several of our friends and family over to come check out our place, share a meal, and most importantly, play the inaugural game of backyard cricket. It's certainly on the to-do list. But Jesus isn't condemning fellowship with family and friends here or fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That would not only be ruthless, but contrary to much of what Jesus teaches us elsewhere in the Bible. But what he is warning us against is our tendency to only extend mercy and the grace of hospitality to those who can return the favour. Pastor and author Philip Ryken provides a really helpful distinction. He talks about the difference between civility and charity. He says it's really quite easy to be civil. We conduct our hospitable affairs in a manner that conforms to social norms. You know, we make sure we don't arrive empty-handed. We make sure we dine our guests uh, to the same degree that they dined us. You know, even with little things, we, we have people over and we think, oh, when we went to their place, they brought out the expensive wine. I better duck up to Dan Murphy so we can do the same. We get mathematical at points in the way that we do hospitality. And sometimes as we do this, we can trick ourselves into thinking we're being charitable, but what we're actually doing is being civil. It's nothing inherently evil with being civil, but it's not the same as being charitable. But being charitable, he says, is when we abandon all expectations for reciprocation and we selflessly extend our homes, our food and our finances to those who have absolutely no means of returning the favour. This is the kind of gospel-fueled charity that as a church we've been able to do over the last three months with Winter Shelter. In this very building where you sit, we've had homeless members of our community being loved, fed and provided with a warm bed during the freezing cold months that is the Toowoomba winter. We've had Nick and Rhonda and the team selflessly pour themselves out and as a congregation you have generously contributed to make that ministry possible. But what have we gotten in return? Probably some stress, absolutely some stress actually, talking to a few people who were involved. 
probably feeling the pinch as our wallets got a bit lighter. And at times, probably just feeling burdened because the reality is some people are just particularly difficult to love. This side of eternity, we'll probably get nothing or next to nothing in return. But Jesus says, on the other side of eternity, at what he calls the resurrection of the just, you'll be paid in full. You'll have eternal life in the Son of God. Jesus alluded to this idea earlier in the Sermon on the Plain, earlier in Luke's Gospel. This is Luke 6. He said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. If you ever saw the Batman film The Dark Knight, one of my favourites, you'll know that the Joker was famously quoted as saying, if you're good at something, never do it for free. But in the kingdom of God, it couldn't be further from the truth. Instead of, if you're good at something, never do it for free, it's freely you have received, therefore freely give. Let me finish with these words from Philip Ryken. Jesus would have us do this because he wants us to have his heart for people in need. The same heart he had for us when he gave his life for our sins. The guest list he gives us, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, is the guest list of his own grace. These are the very people Jesus came to save. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Luke, that it does not allow us to be comfortable Westerners. Lord, it challenges us to see those who are suffering, those who are crippled, blind, lame, poor, Lord Jesus, it calls us to move towards them. And it's only because you move towards us in our spiritual poverty by sheer grace, Lord, that we can be invited to the table. And I pray that that message of the gospel, that scandalous good news, would stir our hearts to see those who are struggling and we would move towards them with the same posture. Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes to those ways that we can contribute to those around us. Lord, be it in the local church or on the streets of Toowoomba or in nations abroad through compassion and other means. Jesus, as individually and as a church, would you open our eyes to see the poor. In your name I pray. Amen.